If you're new to the Bible, welcome to the Song of Solomon. It's a very unique book. Uh, most of us have not studied it uh, thoroughly, probably. I mentioned this last week. Um, it's poetry that celebrates marital love, and it points to God's love for his people. Last week, we just got started as we were introduced to the two main characters, this shepherd king and this vineyard-working bride-to-be. They're very much in love, and they're anticipating their union together. They haven't been married yet. This is still in the uh, anticipatory stage of the, of the song, of the, of the narrative. Uh, we started last week with a lot of dialogue as they were talking back and forth to each other with words of admiration and assurance and love and desire. And we ended with a wise warning to not awaken love too soon. And now, this morning, they're still anticipating their union, and what is happening is they are expressing their longing to be together. And uh, this longing points us to another longing. And let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at it together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come to us now as we think about your word, and I pray that you would give us wisdom for our relationships, and that you would also help us to see that our ultimate longings are only satisfied in you. Come and speak to the deepest longings of our souls, and may you woo us to yourself afresh today, and may we find in you everything we've ever longed for. And we pray this together in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, I've got to have at least one baseball analogy in this series, so let's get started with it. Uh, Longtime baseball fans would recognize the name Ernie Harwell. He was a longtime radio announcer for the Detroit Tigers, Hall of Fame announcer for over 40 years. And he's a very interesting figure for a number of reasons, one of which is he's the only announcer to ever be traded for an actual player. Secondly, perhaps even more interesting, is that he, he opened every season with a reading from Scripture. And every reading from Scripture that he would read at the beginning of every spring training was in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For over 40 years, he would say, the winter has passed, the rain is over, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. <laughs> spring training is here. Now, obviously, Solomon wasn't writing about baseball, but something a little bit greater than baseball, and that is marriage, a blossoming romance between the shepherd king and his bride. Of course, if Solomon would have been aware of baseball, he would have probably agreed that there's really few things more romantic than taking your girl to a baseball game. Um, but he's writing here about the, the springtime in Israel, and he thinks it's a great time for love, a great time for marriage, a great time for this union to occur. Will Smith used to sing about summer, summer, summertime, as he would talk about all that that season uh, brings about. But for Solomon, this was the, the right context for romance and marriage. Love is in the air with the sunshine and the flowers and the birds singing and this man inviting this bride to come away with him. And we recall how God referred to himself as Israel's husband in a number of places, like Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And in the Song of Songs, we can hear our shepherd king calling us to return to paradise, to a place apart from pain and sorrow. Now, one word that sort of captures, I think, what we're looking at today is the word longing. Longing. You see it expressed in a number of ways throughout this book. You see it here in this text, like in chapter 3, verse 1, when she says to her husband-to-be, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. 
There's a longing to be together. There's a longing for intimacy. There's a longing for union. And this speaks to the experience, I think, of every human being. This human experience of, of longing for someone, for something. Vaughn Roberts tells a striking story. In August of 2012, Voyager 1 entered interstellar space. And it arrived into the unknown, and the NASA scientists decided that they wanted to send a message out into interstellar space. And so they began to talk about what they should read aloud out there. And one team member thought of Beethoven's uh, Cavatina movement in Opus 130. Probably not what I would have thought of, but I'm impressed by it. And she thought of this because alongside the score, Beethoven wrote in German the word Sucht, which means longing. And she said that if someone out there wants to know something about human beings, they need to know something about the longings of human beings. It's very interesting that NASA would choose the word longing to describe human beings. In other words, what sums up humanity is an ache, a yearning, a longing. We have longings for relationships and we have an even deeper longing that can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. We often think that other things will satisfy this longing. We often think that other things will satisfy this ache. But you can have all the comforts in the world and still have an ache. You can have all the things in this world and not be, not be at peace, not be satisfied. And that is because the writer of Ecclesiastes says, he has set eternity in man's heart. We are wired up with a longing. We're wired up with this, this restlessness that can only be satisfied in our God. And so Song of Songs is teaching us about these emotions, these experiences, about love and longing. And this passage highlights the, the longing that the couple have for one another, and it also points us to the ultimate marriage, the place where these longings can only be satisfied. Because even in a good marriage, you still will have an ache because marriage can't provide for you what Jesus Christ can provide for you. So let's look at this text together. First of all, we'll think about the longing for intimacy. Secondly, we'll think about the agony of separation. That's chapter 3. And you see this in this relationship. It's not, it is idyllic, but it's not uh, without any problems. There's, there's, there's conflict, there's separation, there's a restlessness. So there's the longing for intimacy here in chapter 2. Then there is this agony of separation, and then I'll add a third, the hope of consummation. Are we ever just forever teased in relationships? Will a relationship ever really deliver? Okay, so first of all, the longing for intimacy. We see the king approaching uh, like Patrick Steele on his wedding day, uh, uh, climbing over the mountains, the voice of my beloved... And she adds, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. This is before Superman was, was ever a thing, but it kind of sounds like Superman, right? What's your guy like? Well, he, he just, he bounds over mountains. He leaps over them. And you can sense that the language here is, is, ta is talking about urgency, eagerness, his passion, his energy. And she's thrilled that he thinks she's the one. So she's excited, and she says in verse 9, Behold, or my beloved, rather, is like a gazelle or a young stag. He's swift, he's athletic, he's handsome, he's curious, he's strong, he's eager. Behold, there he stands, behind our wall. So there's a problem. There's separation. Gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Ordinarily, that would be a creeper that you should call the police on. <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> 
but this is her beloved. This is her young stag, and he is checking her out or trying to, to find him, and there's an interesting, or find her, she, she's, will she let him in? And so the poetry is striking up this struggle that is in a relationship. There's a barrier. There's a wall. He's outside. She's inside. He, he can't really see her. They're not fully together yet. And we can identify with that feeling of being separated from people from time to time. We often want barriers to come down. Sting has a song called, Oh My God, that captures this angst when he said, Everyone I know is lonely and God's so far away, and my heart belongs to no one, so now sometimes I pray. Please take the space between us and fill it up some way. Take the space between us and fill it up some way. There is within us, as he writes in that song, this desire for union, for closeness, for connection, but we often feel that there is a space between us, or in this text here, a wall between us, and the shepherd king is doing everything he can to overcome that barrier, leaping over the mountains, coming to get his bride. He will eventually try to woo her to himself. But now there's a wall. It's really the story of the gospel, isn't it? As our shepherd king did something even greater as he left heaven to come to earth to bring his bride to himself. There was a wall up between us because of our sin, and Jesus has overcome the wall. And he brings us to himself. Only Jesus can fill the space between us. That's how he approaches her, and now he invites her. Verses 10 to 11, as he appeals to her in a number of ways. There's a direct invitation that he gives to her. It's, it's in verses 10 and 13 that sort of bracket this sec section when he says, Arise, my love, and come away. So that's, that's what he wants. He wants her to come away with him in the springtime. He appeals to her beauty and says, My beloved speaks to me and says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And now he begins to give reasons why she should come away. And he tells her that it is the right time. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over, the flowers appear on the earth. You can just imagine after the rainy season is over, Israel is just filled with flowers. A time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove, which was a bird known to return in April, is heard in our land. So he's, he's paying attention to the time, and I think the language here is both practical and symbolic. Practically, this was the good time to travel. It wasn't in the cold winter. It wasn't in the rainy season. It's springtime, so this is a good season to be traveling. But symbolically, you've got the blooming of the flowers. You've got the birds singing. This whole context is just saying that, that love is in the air. This is the time. And you read this sort of thing in different places, different literature, on film, where springtime is often a season for hope or for love or for new beginnings. Like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan breaks the spell of winter as springtime comes across Narnia. And he's saying, hey, it's springtime. And so he tries to persuade her that the time is right as he continues and says, the fig tree ripens its figs, the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. So this guy, this guy is something, man. This, he's a young stag. He's bouncing over mountains. He's got lines. He's, he, he's, he's dropping bars, and, and he's trying to get her to come away with him, but we're still left with this question. Will she let him in the house, or will she go out to him? At first, it seems like she's playing hard to get. Notice verse 14. He says, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, 
Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. He's like, where are you at? Why are you hiding? I want to see you. I want to hear your voice. I've been married for almost 20 years. Kimberly still plays hard to get. And, <laughs> I, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, that's how I need to talk to her. Verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. We've been married for 20 years. Let's get, you know, uh, I'll stop there. She's like a dove. <laughs> she's, she's in the mountainside. She's inaccessible. And, and like a dove that's, that's hiding. He, he wants to be with her. Now, before we, we think about how this relates to the gospel, I think there's a good word of practical wisdom that Song of Solomon is trying to teach us throughout the book, but also right here, and that is the wisdom of making sure the time is right for something. We've already been told to not awaken love too soon. And here, she longs to be with him. It's not a question of does she want to be with him. It's just that they're not married yet. This is not the time yet. So this is hard for us because if we're honest, most of us don't want to wait for anything. And we're being told to, to wait for the right season. It's wise for us to not open up too emotionally too soon to someone. Maybe you felt the pain of that. You could be all excited that someone is interested in you and pursuing you, but we have to be wise. Others, because they've been hurt emotionally, they are cautious emotionally, but sometimes not sexually, and that is dangerous. They may say in their minds, I'm not going to open up emotionally to this person, but I do have sexual desires, so let me fulfill those. That's very common in our culture, right? Where sin is just normalized. And we just, every film or every book seems to have some relationally disconnected, unmarried couple together in that way. But that will never satisfy, and that is not God's good design. That will not honor God. That we have to wait on the right time. Now, we should also say it's possible to be overly cautious. The king is saying, now is the time. He's opening up to her and inviting her away. We're reminded of C.S. Lewis when he said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. And it is vulnerable to open up yourself like this. And so this is him. He's appealing to her. He's opening up to her saying, this is the time. Ecclesiastes also notes this wisdom of knowing the time in Ecclesiastes 3.5. There is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So we need wisdom. We need discernment. But I think, again, this text reminds us of another king who pursued his bride, who did even more than we see in this story, who looks on his bride and extols her beauty. Riken says we should pause here to see the big picture of God's love. When the Bible says that God is our husband and when it says Jesus is the bridegroom of our salvation, it means that we are loved with this kind of love, the ardent affection that we see in the Song of Songs. Sometimes we are tempted to think that somehow we are beneath God's notice or to imagine that we have done something so wrong, maybe something sexual, that God can never love us again or to conclude on the basis of our present troubles that God is not for us but against us. If this is what we think, then we need to hear once again the truth that establishes our identity and determines our destiny. We are loved with an everlasting love. That determines our identity and, and establishes our identity and determines our destiny. We are loved with an everlasting love. He goes on to say, Undying love led the Son of God to leap past galaxies and bound through space to become a lowly human being on little planet Earth. Jesus came to win a lover's heart, whatever the cost. 
In the stirring words of one famous old hymn, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Costly love now compels our Savior to stand at the door and knock for entrance into our hearts. His love declares our true beauty and invites us to rise up from sin and even death so that we can go with him to our eternal home. What we read in the Song of Songs fundamentally is the same thing that God says to us in Jesus Christ. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. You see, that's the, that's the one that can satisfy our longings. Notice her response in verses 15 to 17. It's a very interesting response. This guy's appealing to you. He's bounding over the mountains. He's saying all the right things, and she responds, catch the foxes for us. <laughs> the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. You're like, were you listening to him at all? Um, your response is, catch the foxes? Well, you can imagine here at springtime, the vineyards are blossoming, and these foxes wreak havoc. She's saying, these little pests must be dealt with. And this is an analogy of the hindrances that can spoil a relationship. Catch the foxes. Little things can cause great damage in a relationship, right? That could be jealousy, it could be lack of trust, it could be insecurity, it could be finances, it could be lack of communication. Catch those foxes so they don't spoil the vineyard. But previously she referred to vineyard as her body. So she may be thinking specifically that her sexuality needs to be protected and prized like a vineyard. I can't come away with you now because it's not the right time. We better catch the foxes before they damage the vineyard. And we also need others to help us catch the foxes in relationships that may lead to marriage. In fact, the verb form here, to catch, is in the plural. She may be asking, actually, for the wider community to help protect her purity in this relationship. We need help, protection from sexual sin or manipulation or, or abuse. Satan loves to wreak havoc in relationships like these little foxes. It's always good and wise to have mature, older couples speaking into your life as the younger couple. Watch out for those foxes, she says. But it's not as though she doesn't want to go with him. In fact, she says something entirely opposite of that. She couldn't say anything more than what she says next. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. She opens up to him in the, in the, most, uh, in the deepest possible way, saying, my beloved is mine and I am his. She's not just saying yes to a date. She's giving herself fully to him. She's already imagining herself being his bride. I am my beloved and I, my beloved is mine and I am his. It's the language of union. It's the language of mutual possession. Oftentimes critics of the Bible say that the Bible is patriarchal. But you know, this is not patriarchal. This, this man doesn't own the woman. It is beautifully mutual. He belongs to me, and I belong to him. There's both covenant and communion. I am his, he is mine, and it's not just a legal issue. We're in love. We have communion with each other. And you can hear then the echo of God's covenant with his people. You will be my people, and I will be their God. And we can say of Jesus Christ, my beloved is mine, and I am his. We're in a covenant relationship with him, and we enjoy communion with him. 
and what is Jesus's is now ours. We have inherited the kingdom. We, he took our sin, we receive his righteousness. Isn't that what happens when you get married? That you, you, what belongs to you becomes your spouse's now? It wasn't very impressive for Kimberly. Our apartment was like $400 a month in, in New Orleans. And I had a Rocky poster. I had a, a spork. Uh, didn't have a real, you know, silverware. Um, I didn't have a bed. I had a futon on the floor and a lot of books. And she's like, we need a bed. Okay, I agree. Uh, we need a dresser. Why? What? <laughs> what? What? It's overrated. Um, but everything that I had, it, it was now hers, right? And, well, we received a whole lot more when we got married to Jesus Christ. Look what we received. He is ours. And all the blessings that come to us from Jesus are by virtue of our union with him. And if you're not a Christian, that's the call. In effect, be married to Jesus. Enter a relationship with Jesus, and all that is his becomes yours. And he will be yours forever. Human marriage reflects this great covenant. And so here she is now. She's ready to give herself fully to him, wholly to him, in absolute commitment to him. But she knows it is not time for sexual intimacy. And so she says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. That is until morning. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. When she says turn here, I take this to mean turn aside from me. She knows it's not the right time, so she's sending him away. She's saying, you young stag better go back to where you came from. <laughs> go back to the mountains. She's not saying no, but not yet. Not yet. She wants to wait. And so we're here in this story looking at this lady and this guy longing for intimacy. Now, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we see, secondly, the agony of separation. And the, the poetry, again, is very striking as it is just relating to us this feeling of separation that often exists in relationships, even in good marriages. There can be times in which there's a drift. Maybe it's not due to any uh, problem with each other. Maybe it's circumstantial, but you, you know the feeling when you, you're, you need a certain closeness to, to be reestablished. Maybe your, your spouse goes away on a trip and, and you sense that feeling of, of disconnectedness. This happens in all sorts of relationships, right? As we're separated from each other, we need uh, there to be uh, a, a, a renewed closeness. And so what we're looking at in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, appears to be a dream that she's having, which is also very, uh, is something that we can relate to. If you're like me at all, you, you have dreams about your spouse or uh, people that you love. I regularly have two bad dreams. One has to do with preaching. The other has to do with Kimberly. The preaching one is always like, I get up here and I have nothing to say, and you're just staring at me, um, which I don't know that that could ever possibly happen. Or I get to an event late, I have this dream all the time, I'm thinking about this, or I have even worse, a, a nightmare about Kimberly, because you, you tend to be restless about the things that really matter to you, the, the things that you really love. And here she's restless because she's not with him yet. And yet she wants to be with him, and so she has a dream that she can't find him. Where is he? Verse 1, on my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. 
So she's longing to be with him, but she can't find him. And so even in the night, even when it would have been dangerous, she goes seeking after him. Verse 3, the watchmen found me, and they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul love? You can feel the ache. You can feel the agony. She's desperate to find this man. Scarcely she finds him, it says, had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. She finds him and holds him tightly. There's a long tradition in Christian history pointing out the similarity between this lady in our story and Mary Magdalene at the tomb of Jesus as both go out in search of the king while it's dark and find him and embrace him. She's relieved in our story, isn't she? She's experiencing joy in this reunion as there's a closeness. And you see how the poetry is just, it's just stirring up all the emotions and experiences of a relationship. There's love and longing and loss and reunion. It's all bound up together. That's life. That's relationships. But now they're reunited. Now they're together. And we might think, man, this is a beautiful scene, but there is kind of a strangeness to this scene, right? When she says, I brought him to my mother's house. That's kind of a letdown, isn't it? I mean, she's risked her life. She goes out into the night in search of this young stag, and she finds him, and she's, I want to take you home to my mother's house. Doesn't sound very romantic. I mean, don't you want to get away from your mother's house? Isn't that kind of what we think about? Well, I think it is actually a great conclusion because marriage is not just about sex and romance. It also involves families and communities. I think this text alludes to the idea of receiving the family's blessing. She wants to take him to her mother's house, albeit the bedroom, but still the mother's house. And it shows us that you should not be hiding a relationship from those who know and love you. A healthy relationship is not a private relationship. And your relationship affects other people in your family. And so she loves this dude. She wants to be with this guy, but she knows it's not just about her. Others are in view. And so she ends then with this same warning to those who are not yet united uh, to a spouse that they would not awaken love until it pleases. Don't rush it. Intimacy, don't make foolish decisions. Instead, dedicate your life to God. Dedicate your sexuality to God. See that as one way you offer up yourself to God as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to him, and that does please him. So there, there is then this, this agony of separation, and finally I'm going to add a third point, the hope of consummation. We get to the end of this text, and we read the Song of Songs, and sometimes we wonder, will our, our longings ever be fulfilled? Well, I think we long for the consummation of God's purposes when Jesus comes for his bride. When Paul is talking about marriage in Ephesians 5, this is what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Human marriage reflects this ultimate marriage. And Paul says there is a mystery here. This is a mystery. The original design in Genesis is intended to point ahead to Jesus' union with his bride. So that is to say, whatever our experience in this life is in regard to marriage, whether you're married or single, 
all of us are awaiting the ultimate union with Jesus Christ. That's the only place that our longings will ultimately be satisfied, which is how the Bible ends, right? In Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What will satisfy the longings of your heart and my heart? Not achievement, not recognition, not money, not promotion, not even sexual love. Only the lover of our souls. There are two extremes we have to avoid when we think about marriage. One is the extreme of deifying marriage, idolizing it. And the other extreme, very common in our today's culture, is dismissing marriage, or worse, redefining marriage. Those that deify marriage think that the only thing that will satisfy their longing is the perfect spouse. And if you're single, that can make you miserable. But it can also put huge stress on marriages because your spouse cannot bear all that weight. They will never satisfy you. The perfect spouse doesn't exist. Your, your soul is made for Jesus. There is one perfect marriage, and that is Jesus and his bride. And Jesus calls marriage a temporary institution. So let's not idolize marriage. Let's recognize it as God's good design for the flourishing of society and procreation and enjoyment and so on, but let's not idolize it. Those that dismiss it view it as archaic or outdated or they minimize it. No, the point is human love, however good it, it can be, will not ultimately satisfy our souls. It was never meant to. The only thing that can satisfy the ache is union with Christ. That's it. Jesus relates to us as shepherd, sheep, king, servant, and beautifully groom and bride. And we long for the embrace of our king. God did not create the world to show off the laws of physics or to unleash the laws of ethics. He created the world to redeem a bride. And that's why we have the ache. And that's why the only place the ache will be satisfied is in our Christ. The best of marriages don't have the kind of union that we're anticipating and longing for, therefore we wait. Marriages have ups and downs. Singleness has ups and downs. Those longings and aches are real, but so is our Christ. He is real, and he's the only one that can satisfy the ache within. So what should we do? We should be like this bride and go and seek and find him and embrace him and never let him go. Seek him while he may be found, and you will be able to say with this lady of Jesus, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. And one day we will see him. We could use the words of this song, Behold, he comes. And on that great day, our cold and wandering hearts will be transformed, and the ultimate springtime will appear in a new creation. And we wait until then. A wedding feast is coming. And then all of our disappointments and all of our griefs and all of our trials will be no more and we will be with him whom our soul loves. The time of singing will be unlike any time of singing we've ever had when we see him and are with him. I'll leave you with this beautiful hymn written in the 1600s. A lady wrote after reading the letters of Samuel Rutherford. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, 
and my beloved is mine. He brings a weary sinner into this house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Then I love this, this line. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That's where we're going. And then all of our longings will be satisfied. Father, we thank you for the hope and assurance we have found in your word for the great bridegroom we have in Jesus Christ. May we not doubt his love this morning, but feel it, be overwhelmed by it, to respond in worship in light of it. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came for us. We thank you that you've purchased us. We thank you that we are united to you. And we know that came at a great cost. So as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, we want to be mindful of that cost. Deepen our gratitude and our devotion to you, we pray. Our great shepherd king, in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.